to Devon Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Ruschak. I'm here with my special guest, Tina Taylor Thomas. That is a mouthful. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So you have this wonderful book out called Beyond the Indigo. How did you get into writing this? Well, this particular book is my very first debut novel. I had a vision of something about 12 years ago that's a scene in the book. Mm -hmm. And I jotted it down and kept it in my notes and kept my day job, kept practicing law. And on a flight home one evening from Phoenix, Arizona, I came across it on my iPad. It happened to be January of 2020. And I opened it up, read the scene again, and I thought, you know, it's time to expand on that. And about a month and a half later, I had the full, complete manuscript finished. Isn't that amazing how we do that? We come up with something completely unrelated to anything, write it down as a note, come back to it, and then the words just flow out when they're ready. Exactly. And it's To me, it's so impressive to remember what my feeling was when I just jotted down that small scene Mm -hmm. and to pick it up and see the characters expand. It was sort of like giving flavor and color to two characters I had just kind of on a whim wrote down thing about. But this is what books do. We find those characters out of nowhere. We don't plan characters. We just go, oh, Maybe we have our planners and we have our pantsers. The pantsers are more creative because it goes, oh, the characters are just here and the words are just flowing and the characters write the book for us. Exactly. This particular book, I didn't start out with the ending in mind at all. I, in fact, I had no idea how it would end. I just kept writing and writing and writing. And I knew at some point I wanted to end up in a place. I just wasn't exactly sure I was going to get there. (laughs) Evening that I finally did get to the end, it was as much an aha moment for me as the twist was in the book. So it became very interesting. And the process was as colorful as I would say the rainbow, not to be cliche, because each of the colors kind of represented one of the characters in the book and it sort of like came full-fledged at the end. So it was, it was a wonderful process to go through, especially for a debut novel. It is. Now with this being your debut, are you writing a sequel? Because you said there's a twist at the end. There is a twist at the end and it's interesting. I've had friends who have read it said, you know, there are so many characters in here I want to know more about. What about the sequel? What about this couple? What about this character? So I've considered it, um, nothing in the works, nothing planned, but, you know, I might get one of those 32,000 feet in the air ideas again. On <laughs> and woo, I have a, a sequel, but uh, so far, this is it. So, okay. Now, this is about second chances and soulmates are among us. And I'm big on soulmates. I mean, your soulmate may not be someone you grew up with. They can be halfway around the world and you know, by chance meeting. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I've done since I started marketing the book was to put a a little card together. And I have one here. It's the cover of the book. It's a little card. And on the back, I ask a very simple question. Do you believe in soulmates? And it's interesting, all the people that I talk to about the book, I'll ask that question. Do you believe in soulmates? And like you, Mm -hmm. 
people say, I absolutely believe in soulmate. Everyone has a story or some sort of event that happened in their life. They can connect and say, yeah, I think this person was my soulmate or that was a soulful connection. So I think in some level, this particular book resonates with everyone. It does. And it's, you have the romance, obviously, because you're talking love and romance and soulmates, you know, so that's a very obvious characteristic of the book. But then you go a little bit deeper and you question yourself, do you actually believe in this? And then are you actually with your soulmate or are you with someone for just right now? Exactly. And is there only one soulmate in a lifetime? That's another question that I think is brought up in the book in several different ways. And one of the other interesting aspects about the book is it doesn't necessarily have the main characters answering that soulmate question. There are other characters in the book that you don't even realize you're reviewing, if you will, living their lives and seeing whether or not you see their soulmates in the story without it being brought to your attention. So it gives you an opportunity to look at it. But I think when you ask somebody the question, do you believe in soulmates? And they take that moment. I think everyone starts thinking about their lives and whether it was something at five-year-old, somebody they met on the playground, or if it was 75 years old, um, when they finally made it to their last assisted living location, did they meet somebody there at that particular facility and that person ultimately gave them that aha moment. I think I found my soulmate. So I think it resonates with everyone. It really does. Now, I haven't had a chance to read the book. Obviously, I have like 200 books on my to be read file. <laughs> like many authors and readers, we have more books to read than we have the time to do. <laughs> but did you go into the twin flame paradox with the soulmate? I didn't really... Um, develop any of the twin flame idea in this book, but I think you could look at the characters and I think you could say, aha, that character is another character's twin flame. And because I didn't give it its own definition in this particular book, I leave it to the reader to maybe put their definition into the book, into the characters. You know, two, two of the main characters in this book, um, are one called Hank and Heather. And Hank and Heather are what I would say, maybe not necessarily twin flames, but soulmates of another level, another type. And then two more characters in the book, it happens to be Hank and his very early um, late wife, Mary Kate. I might define them in my own aspect as twin flame, but a reader could take their own definition of twin flame and say, mm, I see that a little bit different. So I didn't go into that aspect, but it's certainly something that could be explored in this book. See, I like asking about that because when we talk soulmates, there's different aspects to what a soulmate is. And researching this for a project I'm working on, I'm like, oh, there's seven different aspects to a soulmate and they're all classified differently. Right. And I think when you do with the multitude of books you have to go through, mm -hmm an opportunity to read this book, I think you could probably take those seven different definitions and apply them to all the characters within the book and maybe give each of the character your own level of definition of those seven different layers. I think that would be an interesting thing to do for a research project. 
and then we go into the fan fiction thing of what you know i'm one of these if i start thinking about it and i'm researching i'm reading that i'm writing my own story based on the book that i'm reading i do this a lot with other authors and it's just for fun but you know it gives the reader another chance to develop the story for themselves and give an outlet to connect with the author exactly i think one of the things i learned very early on when i started um deciding I was going to develop manuscripts. And, and I'd say later in my legal career, maybe switch careers, if you will, um, into the writing aspect. I had to ask myself, did I like the idea or aspect of authors that I read that gave me every single detail? Or did I really like the authors that left open the door for me to color my own picture, if you will? pretty much what you're doing when you read books and you develop your story. You give yourself the opportunity to use your own imagination. And I think when I develop my stories and I have other manuscripts I've worked on, I do leave those doors open for readers to color their own story, tell their own story, uh, make the picture their own. Now, you said you have other manuscripts. Are you looking at publishing those since you mentioned them that a couple of times? I do. I do. I have one. This is interesting. I have a manuscript that I've been working on for the last nine years. It was one of those write a little bit, put it down for a month, six months, a year, pick it up, write a little bit more. I finished it a couple of years ago, but um, even though that manuscript was completed before Beyond the Indigo, I chose Beyond the Indigo to be the first debut novel. The second one that will come out, and I hope it will come out sometime in the early part of 2022, is a book called The Cottage. And it's a historical fiction set both in modern times, but also in the Civil War era. And again, I think it also talks about soulmates and it talks about transcending time and what that looks like, um, and different aspects, different background, different genre. It'll be fun to see how that one is perceived. Um, well, I, I'm very much into the historical fictions and love the Civil War era, you know, for the romance part, not so much as, you know, the political part, but for the romances that budded during that time in the historical fiction era, <laughs> book world. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're touching on something, then you're going to modern and switching back and forth. So that's going to be a really interesting read. Right. And just so I give you a little cap about it, it a modern day couple is forced to look for lodging on their three week vacation to Colorado um, at the last minute. And what they find is a Civil War cottage that is truly a living museum. It is the exact same way it was in the 1860s. Nothing's been changed. And one of the things that the owner of the cottage um, allows is he really just welcomes anyone that comes to peruse all the letters and journals and articles and newspaper clippings that a couple or an individual staying at the cottage may find so that they can get a little bit of that history. And this modern day couple is struggling with their marriage and they start learning about the struggles of a Civil War couple in the 1860s. And they utilize that story from the 1860s to heal their own marriage in that 21 days. 
I think it's really interesting um, how it developed again over seven years, but interwoven throughout it is the test of time of resiliency and hope and forgiveness and love. Like you said, romance in the civil era, civil war era was so different and predicated on so many different things, not only um, gender, class, but race and ethnicity in the Civil War time was something that was really gripping. And I go into all of those things in the cottage. I mean, you have so much going on. If you just look at the romances and the matches and the social classes and how people actually dated or uh, got paired or, you know, depending on where they're at and how they got to where we're at today. Exactly. And the courting, if you will, during mm-hmm. the war between the classes, between the races, between the ethnicity was something that I had to do some research about because something that I felt very strongly about in my heart, I wanted to make sure that it was historically accurate And I found that it was. And so to explore that particular topic was a very, um, something very near and dear to my heart, but also very educational for me as well. And I hope too, that not only is that going to be a fiction novel that's published, I hope that people read it and see that historically it was as accurate as I could make it in my research, but also transcend time to the same sort of social questions that we have today in the modern era. And again, it's not without romance and, you know, the thought in question about do soulmates exist? Um, Not that the two books have any connection whatsoever, but the connection of soulmates and the connection of hope and forgiveness, I think are strong in any really good fiction, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're writing fairy tales with dragons and fairies, or if you're doing a historical romance or a true romance, like for Hallmark, you have, you know, the romance has to be accurate. It has to feel organic. Right. Exactly. One of the things about Beyond the Indigo that I, I dove into without any background was a little bit of the medical fiction area. And um, without any real medical background, they did enough research to feel comfortable with at least scratching the surface of in Beyond Indigo, developing a surgical tool that is meant to, if you will, diagnose and to eradicate neuroblastoma in children. Um, I have no medical background, but I did enough research that I felt very comfortable about the tool that I was describing and using and coming up with in the book. So it's another reason why this particular book, Beyond the Indigo, was so exciting for me to write because it allowed me really to delve into a couple of different areas that I really didn't know all that much about, but felt comfortable with patent law a little bit. Um, I, I practice law, but I'm not a patent lawyer. Um, medical devices. I certainly can do the research on that. So hopefully when people read Beyond the Indigo, they say, ah, it it does make some sense. And she did do some groundwork. And right. Well, as a lawyer, you do research yeah. anyways. So in your field, right. But, you know, when you take something that you do organically doing research, you turn it into an author that's very detailed oriented. Right. Exactly. 
I am required in my day job, if you will, as they say in the writing world, to tell a story. I have to make sure that I understand all of the aspects of it and, and peek behind every door and look down every avenue. It's, it's required of me. And I do that in my writing as well. I want to tell the story of a group of women out for lunch who stop at a Starbucks. Well, I want that Starbucks or, you know, whatever coffee house to actually exist on the street. It actually exists in the city it's supposed to. So that's something I do in, in all of my writing is to make sure that if I say that there's a particular cafe in Geneva, Switzerland, I want to make sure it exists. Um, but there is also the creativity that I love doing, and that's creating not only characters, but fictional places. In Beyond the Indigo, I created a bookstore called Bristol's Brews and Books. And I have a, have a little mug here that I put together. I don't know awesome. if it with its own little trademark. It's, it's really cute. Yeah, and it's got a little bit of the Bristol, England on the back. Um, pays homage to my family which um, many, many years ago were mariners from Bristol, England that moved to Harbor Grace, Newfoundland. Um, but I created that particular bookstore, Bristol's Brews and Books in Beyond the Indigo to take place in Rockville, Maryland. And um, because I was familiar with Rockville, I went to that particular city and, and looked around to figure out, as I described it in the book, was it appropriately in that location? And that kind of research, I think, allows authors to be considered authentic, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody were to read Beyond the Indigo and go to Geneva, Switzerland, which is another location in the book, hotels that I describe and coffee houses that I describe do exist according to the internet as of you know a year ago. So I hope that readers have an opportunity to go down those lanes, if you will, and say, I've been to that particular coffee house or I've been to that store, been on that flight in that particular airport. That's what I hope for them. Well, it's always fun as a reader go, oh, I'm reading this great book and I'm in the city. There's a few historical um, fiction books I do like. I can't remember the names, forgive me, but they take place in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm. So I've been down there. And I've been on the streets. I've ate at the historical buildings where these places take place at. I mean, to be in the book, life in the book, then you see it from a different aspect. Exactly. There's a carousel in Brooklyn, New York, that's famous, um, very beautiful, called Jane's Carousel. And, and part of Beyond the Indigo occurs and takes place at Jane's Carousel. Um, again, a lovely place that if somebody were to pick up the book and say, I've been to Brooklyn, I've been to New York, I know that carousel, they might have a feeling or a connection. I know what it feels like to ride the carousel. I, I can imagine what it would look like to see the characters going around and around and listening. You can hear the music as right. you're reading it. It's touching into memory. And right. when you touch a memory while reading something completely unrelated, you're actually making a parallel to that memory and bringing up positive thoughts. It doesn't something chemically, so, sorry, I'm not a doctor, but I don't know what it's doing, <laughs> but I know it's doing something that makes things go, oh. 
I think it's the same endorphins we feel when we feel kind of that connection to somebody. Mm -hmm. When you see them for the first time, that aha moment that just sort of gives you that pause that I I know you, if Mm -hmm. not now in another life. And those memories, you're right, those chemical reactions that we feel, I think as readers of novels, in fact, for me, I love the feel of a book in my hands. Mm -hmm. We're taken away somewhere when we go and escape to another city or another country or another location, a meadow or a top of a mountain. We feel for a moment that we have transcended somewhere with someone else. And it, I think it just gives us that opportunity, even to be a character in the book, to sit back and watch something unfold. And I think that's what allows us as readers and as authors to connect with one another. I think it's a wonderful thing. It's one of the reasons I started writing when I was a, a wee little girl. It meant something to me to create characters and to go places. I loved it. Well, that's why you're doing it now. And, you know, you're doing it for fun. But at the same time, you have this beautiful debut book out. The cover is fantastic. The colors are beautiful. And it's about colors. It's about indigo. It's about romance. So everything paired on the cover goes to the story. Well, thank you. And that's part of it is to allow someone to feel something when they just look at the rainbow on the very front cover, yes, there is a, a, a subway train and there's something very symbolic about the subway train. If you think about it, our souls move and transcend time and space and places all the time, just like a subway train coming in and out of a station. But that, that rainbow on top of the subway station on the cover of the book is really about touching all of those different colors and One of the reasons why it's called Beyond the Indigo, and I'll touch on this briefly, is because the color indigo, when you go beyond that color, you can't really describe what you're seeing. You have to feel it. It's something that gives you the shiver, if you will, as you look at it. It's one of those endorphin moments. We talked about that chemical reaction, that aha moment, a wow I can't really describe what this color is, but it certainly makes me feel something. And that's why it's called Beyond the Indigo. You do, you paired that perfectly. I mean, you have so many things going on. I mean, we're touching on soulmates, we're touching romance, we're trust, uh, touching on transcendence. You're touching on so many key areas. So it's not just a romance. It's not just a fiction. It's something that makes you feel good. Exactly. One of the other things that happened, that's a funny story. I share it with everybody when they say, you know, how did you write it so fast? When I found that small snippet of a story um, that takes place in a scene in the book, and again, it was not even a page long, really, um, and started writing the book, I knew that I wanted to listen to certain type of music just to get the same flow and that feeling as I was writing each one of the chapters. Um, I didn't know if I would be able to write it in the short amount of time I did. I was fearful I might have to set it down. Um, But unfortunately, like a lot of other people, I was locked in for a little while and no longer traveling for my job as often as I- It's funny how things like that happen, right? (laughs) Exactly. And it's interesting. It was sort of like that aha moment that, okay, I'm giving you this time 
know, touched from above saying, take this time and write this particular story. But I happened to be in the shower one day listening to Pandora and I heard a particular song um, by a gentleman from Canada, Ontario, who's a, a beautiful pianist by the name of Ian Wong. And the song was called Fragile. And it touched me so strongly, I could envision the subway trains coming in and out of the station and the transcendent of souls. And I immediately ran to the Pandora and wrote it down. And it's a song that became sort of the basis of me playing day in and day out as I wrote the story because it had such a movement to it that it reminded me of the trains coming into the station, the doors opening, souls getting on, souls getting off, the doors closing, and then leaving the station again. So it's interesting how we are we connect with not only colors and feelings, but music too, as we're writing. And I think it's all incorporated. I paid a little homage to Ian Wong in the song when I, I put his put that particular song, I related that song in a scene in the book as well. So um, again, I love that music played a part in it as well, even if it was in the background. It was very meaningful. Music does transcend a lot of feelings. It transcends a lot of memories. And it touches a special place in your heart if you get the right song. So when you listen to it and writing to it, you have a flow. If you're a musician, you know the, the thing that goes back and forth on the piano. So that's your time clock there for your writing. You're actually flowing the same way a musician does with the little thingy on the piano. Exactly. I can't say the word. Otherwise, I say, I know <laughs> what it is. I can't say the word. But, but um, we, that's what an author does. We find that flow. When we find what it is that makes that flow, we stick with it. Exactly. Because, again, if you don't know if you're going to be able to write from start to finish as quickly as you do, but have that flow, chapter one looks similar to chapter 32 mm-hmm. and same kind of flow. I find that the rhythm of someone's speech stays the same if you stay within that same zone. And so music does that for me as well. My style stays the same. Editors do get a hold of the book. Several of them did, thank goodness. Um, But that style of writing stayed the same and stayed in that um, pentameter, I think is what it's called, of music, that same rhythm and flow. So I feel like it transcended the entire book as well. That's perfect. I mean, okay, readers don't understand the editing process. One Mm. book goes through at least seven edits. My goodness. Um, You know, being a debut novel, this is the first time I let any other person edit a book of mine, which I think is very interesting. I had one dear friend of mine look at the cottage some years ago, but it was in a very rough state and it wasn't for editorial purposes in the long run. Mm -hmm. Had a number of what I call um, early readers who happened to be best friends who looked at it. um, And I I pay a a big gratitude of thanks in the book to two of my very good friends, my very best friend, Heather Primo, um, she'll tell you she's not a big reader. She doesn't like to read, but she was calling me on the phone as she was reading chapters and saying, okay, I need the next chapter. And I'd say, well, hold on, I have to write it. Mm -hmm. So that's where the editing process, 
um, started for me, but in the professional editing process, which is the first time that I entered into that foray, you have to have a relationship with your editor. You have to weave through a number of fantastic editors to find which one works for you. It's um, much like a business relationship that you want to take to the next level, having a friend, if you will, of your book. You need somebody who's going to see the vision you see and be willing to tell you critically, here's where we need some work and to understand where you hold your ground on other areas. And I think as a new writer, one of the things I wanted to do was to be very open to that editorial process. I didn't want to shut it out so that I had um, some issues later on that I wanted to clean up, but it is certainly a learning curve in this particular area. And there's one thing I would do again and again and again, and that's hire the best editor I could find to really critically look at my book and help me produce the very best story for my readers. The book is a business. If you think about it, you as the author are the founder, CEO, and president. Your publisher is a vice president and your editor is a COO. So if you look at it that way, then you have your marketing team, then you have your advertising team and your sales team. Now a lot, yeah, as an author, there's a lot of times you wear all those hats except for editing. You have to have an editor. But at the same time, if you have to run it like a business. Exactly. You know what? And that's a wonderful analogy to give it because as an author, I believe you only grow when you stay in your lane and your lane may not be the editing lane. You might not be as good an editor as you are a creator. And you certainly may not be as good at marketing as you are as a creative storyteller. Those two things are very different things, but you're right. You might wear multiple hats. I found in this process, as you can see from my little mug here that I have, and I'm putting Mm -hmm. together what I call uh, book club, parcels and packets for people who want to do book club. I have found that particular aspect of it a lot of fun because even though I've written the book and my characters are now, you know, encased in these 300 plus pages, I still think about them. I still think that I'm around them and I keep them in my thoughts and mind. So I want to go beyond. And you asked about a sequel right now. I'm kind of going beyond the book and, For instance, here's a good example. There's an apple pie that gets turned over in the book into an oven and creates a mess on Thanksgiving morning. That apple pie recipe is something I want everyone to have who might want to be part of a a book reading book club Um, or drink tea out of the mug from, you know, Bristol's Brews and Books and, and that sort of marketing aspect of it, I found fun. And again, it's my first foray. Maybe it won't be fun in a year from now, and right. over, but I've enjoyed that part of it. So, but we're almost out of time. So how can our listeners and our viewers find you and your book? You can find me at www.tinataylorthomas.com. That's the website that connects directly to the book. And you can reach out to me there and stay tuned for additional novels that are coming up. That is wonderful. And thank you, Tina, for being on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great night. And for our readers and our listeners, happy reading.